We're going to spend some time now studying the Bible together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible and open it up to Hebrews 11. We're starting a new series today in Hebrews. Yes, this is really heavy, but I'll get it. It's all right. Okay. Hebrews chapter 11, we're calling the series Ancient Faith. And actually, also, let's pause for a minute and remember uh, this weekend. Uh, Tomorrow's Memorial Day. Uh, And as Christians, Memorial Day takes on a special meaning as we pause to remember those who have made the ultimate sacrifice. It reminds us, it's a, it's a token, it's a picture of God's love for us. So we want to pause and remember and honor the fallen, but we also want to allow that to, to push our hearts to remember Jesus who made the ultimate sacrifice. He said, the greater love is, has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so whenever someone makes a sacrifice, that reminds us of Jesus who made the ultimate sacrifice. So we want to give thanks and um, remember him as we remember those who have fallen. All right, so we're going to start our new series today called Ancient Faith, Heroes Who Longed for a Better Home. And Hebrews 11 is sometimes referred to as the Hall of Faith because what the author to Hebrews does is he sets up this series of Old Testament heroes who walked with God by faith. We're in great danger as modern people of falling under the influence of what is sometimes called chronological snobbery. Have any of you ever heard that term before, chronological snobbery? C.S. Lewis talked about this. The idea is that we think whatever is new and current is smarter and better. Um, And really, anyone that studied history knows that is not the case, right? Uh, Empires rise and fall. People are always doing stupid things because of our pride. And so it's really good for us to look back on those who have gone before and say, hey, there there are those who have walked this path before us who learned to walk with God by faith. The author of Hebrews tells us to look at these Old Testament, Hebrews, uh, Old Testament saints and to look at their faith. We don't always emulate everything they did. Uh, Old Testament believers made serious mistakes just like we do, but they learned to depend on God and his grace by faith. And so that's what we're going to be doing this summer. We're going to be kind of starting as a launching pad in Hebrews 11 and then looking back at the Old Testament passages that describe these guys. Today, It's called ancient faith in creation because what the author to Hebrews does is he says, hey, all these ancients, all these old timers before, they started with faith in God through creation. They started with looking at creation. That's an important kind of key foundation. So that's where we start. We're starting where the author to Hebrews starts in Hebrews 11, and then the rest of the series, uh, we'll be looking at these other heroes that are named in Hebrews chapter 11. 11. So if you don't have a Bible, we've put black Bibles under the chairs and we'll be on page 1007. Page 1007 is where you can find Hebrews chapter 11. And also, I don't think I mentioned this. If you don't have your own Bible, we'd love for you to keep that. We, we have plenty of those. Uh, we want you to be in the habit of reading it and studying it. So if you don't have one at home, go ahead and keep that and we'll restock and put new ones under the chairs there. Uh, my two oldest kids are actually in town. All three of my kids are in town for a wedding of a friend uh, so it's fun to have time with them. They're all adults now, right? They're, they're big grown-ups now. Uh, but when they were little, the two oldest ones were very similar size. So my oldest child is a girl who's a little short, and then the second born was only 15 months younger, and he was a boy who was a little bit tall. So we kind of jokingly called them the twins because the tall boy and the short girl were basically always the same size. You know, she was maybe an inch ahead of him, but they were always the same size. And so there was this game that they liked to play when they were little, somehow along the lines, we discovered that their hands looked exactly alike, right? They both had like mirror image, chubby little kid hands, and we couldn't tell the difference. And so they would play this game where they would hide behind a table or behind a chair, 
and they would lift up their hands, and we would try to guess which hand it was. <laughs> Hours of enjoyment playing this game, right? I think sometimes it was more fun for them than for us, but it was a great game. We enjoyed the game. Um, and there's this basic connection here. We knew that the hand was not a disembodied hand, but it was connected. The hand that we could see was connected to something we could not see behind the couch. Are you following me? This is so simple it might be easy to miss. What was seen was connected to something that was unseen. And that's what the author to Hebrews is saying. The author to Hebrews is going to tell us in just the first few verses here that we have this phenomenological world, a world of seen, tasted, measured, smelled, experienced, We live in an embodied scientific world where we can see things. And the author to Hebrews says, faith starts with seeing that there's something more than what we can see. We connect the seen to the unseen. Okay? Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Science is a glorious thing for us to engage in. We observe, we measure, we test, we see. Faith means we look at what is seen and connect that to the unseen realm. We recognize that there is more we see that there is a creator. That's where faith begins. Let me pray for us and then we'll we'll unpack this in more detail. God, we thank you for your word. We believe it speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so we posture ourselves as listeners. We want to hear what you have to say to us. God, I pray that your spirit would meet us now so that we would hear your word. We would hear who you are and how you've revealed yourself in creation and in your words, in your scripture. God, I pray also for our friends that are here today that have doubts and have questions. We honor them, and we pray that you would give them the gift of open-mindedness. We would help them to hear what you have for them as well. We pray that you would bless our time and be with us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is that the ancients, their faith started in creation, and we also are to follow that pattern. We're to look at creation And that should grow our faith. That should grow our faith as well. We have seen things, and through the seen things, we reason. By faith, we think, we ponder. We reason that there are unseen things. There is an unseen creator. And so what I'm going to do today is a little unusual from what I I usually do. If you're new to the church, what we typically do is expository, expositional preaching. We'll just work through a series, right? We just finished Philippians. We went through about 10 verses a week, just moving through the whole book. This is a little different because we're kind of toggling all summer long from Hebrews 11 to then the Old Testament stories that it pictures or that it points to. Uh, and so today, as we look at creation and the faith that we're supposed to have at creation, we're going to kind of bounce through some key passages in the Old and New Testament that talk about creation. What should our posture be before the created world, the phenomenological world, the, the world that we can taste and touch and see and smell and, and measure and experience. So here's a simple outline we're going to follow today. Number one, creation points to God. Creation points to God. We saw that in Hebrews 11. We're going to jump off and look at Psalm 19 as well. A lot of other passages talk about this. Creation points to God. The second part of our outline is that creation is suppressed 
by man, um, uh, suppressed by people like you and me. We're the problem with not fully reckoning with what creation is pointing to when it points to God. So it's suppressed by people like us. It's suppressed by human beings. And then thirdly, creation is being restored by Jesus. Jesus is restoring creation. One of the early church fathers, Athanasius, wrote a a book called On the Incarnation, talks about how God coming into creation, becoming a part of his creation, redeems his creation. We see that in Jesus. John 1 talks about God taking on flesh, which is a beautiful and amazing concept. Jesus is restoring his good creation. He's redeeming it. Okay, so the first part of the outline is that creation points to God. And we're going to look at Psalm 19. Again, if you're in the black Bibles under those chairs, that's on page 456. Um, If you're not using one of those, you're using your own Bible, just kind of flip to the middle. You'll get close to the Psalms. Psalm 19, 1-9. Psalm 19, creation points to God. C.S. Lewis said this is one of the greatest works of poetry in the history of the world. But it's utterly fantastic. Um, I'm not a poetry expert, but I sure like this passage. Psalm 19 says... In verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I connect to this at a visceral level, at an emotional level, because I personally am encouraged in my faith when I feel lost, when I feel confused. I just walk outside and I look up at the stars, and I feel restored. I feel encouraged. I'm reminded of the bigness of God. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So what's the big idea here? The heavens specifically, but I would say the created world in general, we see from cross-referencing the rest of Scripture, he's saying the created world, the heavens, the world God's made, is saying stuff to us, is proclaiming that God is glorious. He's great. He's awesome. He's good. There's a message that's being pumped out. Now, verse 3 is weird. If you're reading a different translation, it's going to come out oddly, because this is a very confusing Hebrew construction. So I'm going to read the ESV here. It says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Like, what? What is he saying? Here's the thing. Um, We interpret confusing verses with simpler verses. That's a key way to study the Bible, okay? If you've got a friend trying to get you to come to First Church of Weirdness, and they're basing all their doctrine on some strange verse that nobody understands, run, okay? Run. We, we base doctrine on clear, repeated verses in Scripture, right? Scripture is understandable, and God gives us plenty of stuff that we understand. There's plenty of stuff that's repeated a million times. And then we have weird verses that we struggle with, and we interpret that by the clearer verses. And we can do that right here. So this comes out differently in many different Bibles because the construction is strange, but we know what verse 1 and 2 said, and we know what verse 4 is saying, that there's a speech that's going out, right, throughout all of creation. So verse 3 is saying, there's no speech, there are no words. The way the Hebrew is constructed, it's saying something like, there are words, but there aren't words. Do you follow that? That's the simplest way I could say it. So it's just hard to translate that into English, right? Especially when you're coming from ancient Hebrew. There are words, but they're not really words. It's a paradox, right? What's the point here? Creation is telling you something. It's not telling you the way like your neighbor tells you something. It's not a human voice. It's not like words that you can see spelled out in the sky. It's not a skywriter, right? But still, something is being said. Do you follow that? So can we interpret the, the strange verse? There are no speech, there are no words. With the clear verses. Oh yeah, there's a message. 
Words are being pronounced. There's a clear message. Verse 4, their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. A constant message is being proclaimed. When you walk outside, when I walk outside, we know God is. We know he's there. Creation points to God. His fingerprints, his handiwork. Sometimes this is referred to as intelligent design. Have you all ever heard the intelligent design argument? Intelligent design basically means we we look at stuff that looks like it was designed and we can reason because we have common sense that there's a designer with intelligence that designed it. We know in the world we live in that there's junk that's accidental and that there are things that have the mark of design. The known universe has the marks of design. And so through common sense, we're just like, oh, yeah, there's a designer. Somebody came up with this, right? And there are all kinds of apologetic reasoning tools that you can look up and search. One of my favorite books uh, on the subject of creation and how it points to the creator is a book called The Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel. I recommend that book because it's kind of a collection where he interviews and talks to different scientists and experts about how science and creation points to a creator, right? Uh, so that's a helpful one to start with if you've never studied this. There's tons out there. There's, there's a lot of stuff out there you can study. I'd love to talk to you more about more resources but there's just this common sense idea that, yeah, the, the look of a design tells us there's probably a designer. And, and the world is full of marks of a designer. Um, when you go farther back into philosophy, starting with Plato and going into Aristotle, and then somehow that's taken hold of by uh, Thomas Aquinas, who was a Christian philosopher in the medieval times, they would talk about the cosmological argument. Any of you heard of that? Cosmological argument is the idea that there's got to be a start to all of this, right? Sometimes it's phrased as the unmoved mover. There's always something that's unmoved, that's moved everything else, that started it all, right? Or an uncaused cause. That's sometimes how these things are described. And so it's important for us to know, yeah, there are very reasonable ways to understand that there's a design and a starter and a creator for all this. And the Bible agrees with that as well. The Bible is agreeing with the philosophers and saying, oh yeah, we, we just know. We could just tell. We walk outside, we know, right? When we experience creation, we know. I grabbed a picture here of a distant galaxy seen through the Hubble telescope. How many of you have ever logged on to like NASA website or Hubble telescope website to look at the pictures? Some of you have done that? See some nods, some raised hands, okay? Um, you can look at the glory of the stars, as it's talking about here, the heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, it's amazing. Another way you can do this if, if you're not a you know, website Hubble telescope nerd is... If you live in Texas, just walk outside at sunset, right? Just walk outside and enjoy the sunsets. A lot of you, we have a very transient city. Some of you have come from other places where there are trees. And some people are confused, like, what's the deal with the no trees? We just got rid of all the trees so we could enjoy the sunset. (laughs) So you're welcome. Go outside and enjoy the sunset. It's gorgeous, right? And when we see the beauty of the sunset, we feel small and secure simultaneously, knowing that God is there and he's a God of beauty, a creator who has made all these things. There's so many ways for you to enjoy the beauty of this God who's a creator. There's so many ways for you to to see creation and how it points to a creator. How many of you love animals? Any animal lovers here? That's another way, right? Like some of us are like, I like to look at the stars. I don't want to touch them, but I want to look at them. Some of us like to touch animals and feed them and be close to them, right? That's a part of God's creation. Some of you are gardeners. That's a part of God's creation. 
How do you experience the natural world? This is an ancient way of faith. God says, run, play, enjoy it, feel it, taste it, experience it, and it all points to God. These are pathways for us to see God's goodness and his creative power. I want to encourage you to go chase that, pursue that. And we've all got different ways of doing it, right? Um, Some of you might be stars and astronomy people. Some of you might be, you know, gardening people. Some of you might be animal people. There's a million other ways. Some of you might just like to float in the water in a river, right? There's so many different ways to experience God's creation. That's one of the blessings of COVID-19. So many of us were outdoors doing things last spring. I don't know if you know this, but just economically, there was like this uh, dearth of uh, equipment for fishing and biking and kayaking and canoeing. Like everybody sold out last year. Did you know that? Just because more people were going outside and doing this stuff, which I think is really good. Some of this is we're returning to the ancient ways instead of always being connected to these screens that just make us stupider and stupider. We're actually experiencing nature, which is an ancient way of growing wiser and seeing that God is there and he is good. So connect the, God, the dots. Uh, creation points to God. Feel it, walk in it, ponder it, stare at it, touch it, smell it. God's encouraging you to do this. Proverbs says, look to the ants, you sluggards. Look to the ants. Watch, watch the ants even, right? There's so many ways to do this. We have barn swallows nesting over our front porch. Love to watch the barn swallows. Sometimes they scare us. They dive bomb. We think they're going to kill us. But most of the time, they're just gorgeous, right? So good to enjoy these things. The flowers. Have you ever thought about the reality that God didn't just decide to like plant one flower? You know, he, he decided to create so many. These are pointers to his beauty, his love for you and for me. Now, creation points to God, and this poetry, Psalm 19, is broken into two halves. The first half of it talks about creation and the heavens pointing to God, and then the second half talks about God's revelation in his word, talks about his law, his instruction that he gives to us. And so they're pinned together, and theologians always talk about two ways that God speaks to us. God speaks to us through the speech of the heavens, where there's speech without speech, right? The weird verse 3. There are words without words. He's telling us something, even though it's not the normal words. But then he also speaks to us more specifically in his word. Psalm 19 will go on to talk about his law and how delightful and how beautiful it is. Calvin talked about it this way. Calvin said, we see God in the world, but we see him more clearly by putting on the reading glasses of the scriptures. And so the scriptures become like our spectacles, right? I'm, I'm old enough now where I can't really read without my glasses, and so some of you are like, I, I go outside, I, I try to be in touch with, neighbor, uh, with nature, but I'm, I'm like not seeing God there, right? This is the answer. Put on your glasses. As you read and understand his word, you'll grow in wisdom so that you'll be able to jump on this ancient path of wisdom and seeing God in nature. Okay, so the next point is uh, where this all goes wrong. Creation is suppressed by people like us. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, this is a key passage, a key text. Um, if you're in the Black Bibles, it can be paid, uh, found on page 939. Page 939, it's Romans 1, creation is suppressed by people like us, right? Another way of saying this is, 
If you're in nature and you experience nature, God is talking to you. And if you're not hearing him, it's because you're sticking your fingers in your ears. That's basically what scripture says. Uh, I raised three children. They're all grown now. Um, And sometimes our children would not hear us. Now, sometimes they legit didn't hear us, right? But you know, if you have kids, sometimes they just needed to listen. (laughs) And so sometimes I would just have to tell them, it's your job to hear me, right? Like your job is to pay attention to what I'm saying. And I'd say we have the same moral responsibility to creation. We have the moral responsibility to look at creation, pay attention to what it's saying to us, listen to the message. So here's how it's worded in Romans 1. Romans 1, 18, here I'll flip over. I've got it marked here, I think. Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Uh, So God's angry at us for suppressing the truth. Here's how we suppress it, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So God has shown us himself through what is seen. So again, Hebrews 11 is saying, we know the unseen via the seen. And what do we do? How do we respond to that? We cover our eyes, we plug our ears. It says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Do you see how he's just kind of repeating the same stuff we already saw in Hebrews 11? It's like, yeah, you, you know the invisible God from the visible stuff that he's made. He can clearly be seen. He gives us no room to run as we argue and debate. No, I I didn't hear it. I didn't see you. I didn't know you were there. He goes on at the end of verse 20 and says, so they are without excuse. Verse 21 says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what happens when we know God is there and we do not honor him? What happens? Our hearts get darkened we become more foolish. We get stupider and stupider. He goes on and says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So this is a pattern we see in the ancient world. It's easy for us as modern people to judge this because most of us do not have images of mortal man or creeping things on our mantle that we're bowing down to. I mean, some of you might be bowing to a frog statue or something, but that's not as common in the modern world, so we trick ourselves and think, oh yeah, we don't do this. But we still bow down to created things. We just don't bow down to the images anymore, right? But we're still caught up in the same lie of telling ourselves that no, the true God is not there and I'm going to bow to these other powers of success and money and pleasure and these other things. We do the same thing again and again. In verse 24, he says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is starting to sound more like the modern world. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He goes on to talk about sexual immorality. This is one of the key passages where ancient believers in the Bible say, yeah, all the the modern, follow your heart, do whatever you want to, whatever feels good, do it, it is not correct. But where does it start? It starts 
from denying that God has the right to tell us what to do. And we all fall into this pit. We all do this. Creator, the creation, and the creator of that creation is suppressed by people like you and me. Now again, this is mostly a religious crowd. We're in a church. You're, you're here for some reason, right? You're at least open to this weird religious stuff we're talking about today. And so it might be easy for you to judge those kind of people who are involved in, in the most extreme sexual immorality. It might be easy for you to judge those who, in the most extreme ways, have rebelled against God. Here's the beautiful thing that the Apostle Paul does in Romans 1, 2, and 3. He doesn't let any of us off the hook. He says that backbiting and gossip is just as bad as sexual immorality. He says that religious people that think we're saved by being religious are just as lost as irreligious people who completely deny a creator exists at all. He builds this argument, and he builds this argument, building up to Romans 3.23, where he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's religious people and the irreligious people. The wildly rebellious who are involved in the most extreme forms of immorality and rebellion and the best neighbors and the most religious people. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can save ourselves. We can't save ourselves by listening to our heart and following pleasure. And we can't save ourselves by cleaning up our act and doing everything right and being good neighbors. We can't save ourselves. Jesus is the only one who can save us. And that'll be our final point, but that's the thrust of the entire book of Romans. The entire book of Romans says, none of us can save ourselves, religious or non-religious, only Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, who lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, who rose from the dead proving that he really did conquer sin and death for you and me. And we approach him, as Hebrews 11 says, by faith. Just like the Old Testament heroes trusted God by faith, knew they couldn't save themselves, trusted in better promises of a perfect home someday, we also walk by faith, trusting God, saying, God, I can't do it, I need you. Now, the Old Testament saints didn't have all the details of Jesus and when he would be born and how he would die on the cross, but they knew they had to trust God. They had to trust God to save them. And in the same way, we trust God to save us, and we see it much more crystal clear through Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection. I love this illustration of how we suppress the truth from a book called The Magician's Nephew. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. It's been made into movies, and the most famous one is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've been at the church a long time, please forgive me. I think I've read this excerpt like five times, okay? But I know most of you are new. So, I'm going to read it again. This is from the magician's nephew. His name was Uncle Andrew. He was this magician that was a skeptic. And in these stories, they're fantasy stories, so they're weird, okay, full of weirdness. But they had this lion character that kind of stood in in this fantasy world for the creator God, kind of like a stand-in for Jesus, which makes sense symbolically because Jesus referred to as as a lion in the scriptures. So this lion named Aslan is like creating the world by singing it into being through his speech, through his words. He's singing Narnia into creation, into being. And Uncle Andrew, the magician, is a skeptic. He doesn't believe what he's hearing when he hears this beautiful song. So I'm going to read this excerpt for you. When the lion had first begun singing long ago, when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. 
Then when the sun rose and he saw the singer was a lion, only a lion, he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make believe that it was not singing and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo in our own world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. That's the key line right there. The trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed, and Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. Now, as I said, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is saying this happens to non-religious people and religious people. No, no matter what our form of self-salvation, if you're trying to save yourself, you're no longer going to hear the song of the good news. You're no longer going to hear the beauty of a creator who's coming after you, who's saying you cannot save yourself, but I'm pursuing you in love. You cannot save yourself, but as Paul talked about in Philippians 2, I'm leaving the comforts of heaven to take on sin and death myself, to bear the burden, to rescue you from your own problem. The more we look to that creator, the more we'll hear the song. The more we look away, the more we suppress it, the more we think, oh, I can just, I can just clean myself up. If I just do the right things, if I get more religious, then God will be forced to bless me. The more we think we can do it on our own without him, the stupider and stupider we become. And we'll start to just hear a snarl. You'll start to just hear a roar when you should be hearing a song. Now, I think one of the modern academic ways this happens is in the world of, of evolutionary theory. Um, I think it's really helpful for us to distinguish that there's a big difference between microevolution and macroevolution. Um, another way uh, a Christian scientist says this is that you can think about evolution as an explanation of how some things happen in genetics, or you can think of evolution as a theory of everything. And that's pretty dangerous as scientists to look at the seen world and to say, the seen world is all there is. And these things I see and measure is the explanation for everything. Again, Scripture tells us, and I think common sense tells us, that the seen point us to unseen things that we don't fully comprehend. And so, I just want to be clear, Christians have a lot of different views on evolution. We just want to guard against the most extreme view in particular and say it is not the explanation of everything. And we want to pause and have kind of a common sense view of this and say, why is our culture run so hard and so fast to say, because microevolution exists, therefore macroevolution explains everything. Because we've measured some things that happen in a couple of generations, that means that species can jump from one species to another, even though we've never seen any evidence of that. I'm arguing just from common sense of how biology works. Now, man, if, if you think I'm wrong, I'd love to talk to you about it. Please talk to me. 
Um, I've never heard an explanation. I've only heard people say, by faith, it has to explain everything. It's just a new faith system. So all I'm arguing for is some humility. My premise is that humility makes us smarter and pride makes us stupider. That's basically my thesis. And I think any of you that work in the scientific world could affirm that. Oh yeah, the scientists I work with that don't engage in methodolatry or pride or hubris, the ones that remain tender and humble and keep asking questions and keep trying to learn, they're the ones that are the smartest. They're the best scientists. They're the ones that are learning a lot. Now again, Christians have a lot of different views of this. Uh, For a while, the beginning of the week, for a while, it's been a short week, I was thinking I might just teach on Genesis chapter 1 on creation. Uh, but decided, really, the focus of Hebrews 11 is really fleshed out through these other key texts. But I want to recommend a text to you. Um, if you're wanting to study that stuff more, I already recommended the book, The Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel. is helpful just kind of looking at creation in general and reasons and stuff. Um, but just looking at the texts of Genesis and the creation accounts, um, there's a commentary by James Montgomery Boyce on the beginning passages of Genesis uh, that I think is really helpful. He kind of summarizes all the different views. Because here's the thing. Christians have a lot of different views right? And what we want to do is be careful as Christians as well to not be too prideful. Just as there can be kind of an academic scientific pride of I've got it all figured out, Christians can do that as well. And Christians can be very prideful where we mix up primary and secondary issues. I think the primary issue from Hebrews 11 is the seen world points to an unseen creator. That's the primary issue. And just so you know where I stand, I'm, I'm more on the conservative end of the spectrum of how I understand how God did that, um, but I want to say, man, I've got Christian brothers and sisters that disagree with me on how God did that, and there are differing views. And throughout history, even before Darwin ever came up with his theories, there have been differing views on Genesis. So we just want to acknowledge that and say that the, the road to Christian unity is found in a humility that says, you know what, the gospel and obeying what God tells me to do, that's primary and then how we interpret some of these things is, is secondary. We want to operate with some humility in these areas. Love each other. Uh, show unity together around the most important things. So again, here's my thesis. Pride makes us stupider. Humility makes us smarter. Um, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 23, 23. In Matthew 23, 23, he talks about religious pride and how it makes people stupider. He talks about the Pharisees. He says that they tithe mint and dill and cumin. They're very careful about these secondary issues, but he says you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Jesus just said, hey, there are important things and less important things. We've got to pay attention to the important things. Do you know the gospel? Do you know that you're a sinner? You're separated from God unless you trust in what Jesus has done for you? Do you know that he calls you to obey him, to walk in newness of life, to do good works, to serve people, to obey his law? Do you you know these simple primary things? Are you working on that? Are you going to have intramural debates with other Christians about all these other secondary things and fight with them on secondary matters? Jesus says, you're neglecting weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. So again, we want to be humble people. We want to hold our beliefs that are primary with a closed fist, and then we want to hold our secondary things that we're not as sure about with, with an open hand and love each other well. Man, we're going we're gonna to make primary the gospel of Jesus Christ on and across for our sins. We're going to make primary that the scripture is our only reliable source of truth. We're going to make primary that we should obey God and what he tells us to do. 
the, the coherent, consistent morality of the Old and New Testament. It's the same. We're going to obey him. We're going to try to live by the moral framework that he calls us to. And then there's a lot of other things we're going to give each other room to disagree about. Okay, the last thing that we're told is that creation will be restored by Jesus. Creation will be restored by Jesus. Um, We're going to look primarily at Romans chapter 8, which can be found on page 944 in the Black Bibles, if you want to flip there, and we'll end here. Romans chapter 8, and I'm just going to kind of recite to you Genesis 3.15, which is after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, there's a promise that God makes that someday there's going to be a son of Eve that will come that will defeat the serpent. The poetic language is that the serpent's head will be crushed and the son's heel will be crushed. Which would you rather have, a crushed head or a crushed heel? Heel, there you go, all right. And so that plays out in the story of Jesus Christ. He's crushed, he's hurt, he's injured, he dies on the cross for our sins, but he rises from the dead, proving that he's conquered, defeated, crushed the head of evil, of the serpent, of the dragon, once and for all. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. Now it's worked out in the rest of Scripture. We're skipping all the way to the end, okay? Sorry, spoiler alert. Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul says, the time we live in now, creation is full of suffering. The world is broken. It's glorious. The sunsets are still gorgeous. They still point us to God, but there's still tornadoes and disaster. There's still disease and difficulty in this world. So I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So here we see that the uh, restoration of creation is tied up with God revealing the sons and daughters of God, his redeemed, his saints. He goes on in verse 20 and says, The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is this future picture of a redeemed creation, a restored creation, a new heavens and a new earth. There's kind of this um, way of talking about salvation that's often worded as like an escape from this reality. And please understand that there's a part of that that is absolutely true, right? I mean, to die, Paul said, we just finished our study in Philippians, to die and to be with Jesus is better by far. To be with God face to face, that's where I want to be. We should live with that kind of sense of urgency of like, I'm ready to die and the only reason I don't die now is because Jesus has more work for me to do, right? We talked about that all through Philippians. So there's a sense in which it's an escape from the suffering of this present time to die and to be with Jesus. But that can translate into a kind of thinking which says the created world is bad, right? And we can start to think that we'll, we'll be up in like this kind of floaty, immaterial care bear world, right? And we want to be there where things float and there's no solidity to anything, And we want to be done with this physical world because it's just gross and broken. And really, that's more of a Greek idea, philosophically. That's not the Hebrew Christian idea. The Hebrew Christian idea is the world's awesome. Creation is good. God made us to plant trees and to raise babies and to cook food and to have parties. God made us for that. What's wrong with it? 
our sinful hearts. That's what's wrong with it. That's what's broken with the world. And so, yeah, there's a sense in which there's like escape and release, but that's just because the world right now is a sinful world. The promise is that all the way in the future, the new Jerusalem's going to come down. He's going to redeem everything. We're going to have glorified bodies. It's going to be physical and without sin. Most of us can't even like, right? Your brain's blown. We, we can't even imagine that because we so associate the current physical reality we know with, with sin and death and brokenness. But the promise of Scripture is that creation was good. Right now, creation has fallen, but the promise is, is God's going to restore it all. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, it says in the end of Revelation. So verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's the completion of our adoption. We have the adoption now. We're in his family. We now cry out, Abba, Father. We know he loves us. We're restored to right relationship with him now by faith in Jesus. But we look forward to this full adoption, redeemed bodies, no more brokenness. He says in verse 24, for in this Hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, with the theme of the seen and the unseen. There's still unseen to come that we're waiting for. He's going to redeem all things. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And so Paul gives us this reality that the current existence we live in, where as Paul said, yeah, I'd rather be in heaven with Jesus, but right now, Jesus has me on assignment. He's got you on assignment too. And he says, the assignment you're on right now feels like the pains of childbirth. And I know it's dangerous for a man to talk about childbirth. I did something even more dangerous. I Googled childbirth when I was trying to find images for you. Please don't ever do that. This was the best one I could find. This is the cleaned up stock photo where they bring in a model to pose with somebody else's baby who hasn't gone through all the stress, who's not crying. They're smiling. Everything seems fine. Um, For those of you who don't know, this is not actually what childbirth looks like, okay? They're at peace. Everything's cool. Childbirth can be a very traumatic event, even for dads, right? I was there for the birth of all three of our children. Uh, I endured that childbirth. My wife endured it more than I did. Um, It was difficult. My my daughter had a baby just over a year ago. Did y'all know I have a grandbaby? Have I ever talked about that? She's gorgeous. She's here today. So yeah. Um, And there's this point when we were waiting for the baby. There she is. We were waiting for the baby to be born. And I was bringing something to my son-in-law. Like I went back to bring him a drink or something. And, you know, and I go back to where the the labor room is. And I go up and I'm like, this is for my son-in-law. He's in there. And she's like, oh, you can go in there. I was like, no, the labor's happening. I'm not going in there. (laughs) Like I was there for my children. I'm not going to go in there for somebody else's Deliver, even if it's my grandchild. So I made the nurse bring in the drink. But anyway, all that to say, that was a tangent to say, childbirth is painful. Okay, that's the point. Childbirth is traumatic. It's painful, and yet it is beautiful, right? It is fruitful. It is glorious. That's the present suffering we're living through right now. That's, that's what God has us doing in this world. You're like, what, what's the purpose in life? Is the purpose in life for me to just, you know, be comfortable and easy? No, God's got you on assignment. This world, this life is 
Again, don't misunderstand. It's not childbirth in the sense of literal. I mean, that's a part of it. Literal childbirth is a part of it, but this extended metaphor is God's got you here to suffer and serve others, to love them in the name of Jesus for the, for the glory of God and the joy of all people in Christ. You're on assignment. You're not done yet. He's got work for you to do. So again, we do it in different ways. We're, we're one body with many parts. We have different gifts. We have different skills. We have different opportunities. We'll do it in different ways. But we are to suffer well. We are to carry our cross. We're to follow Jesus, this cruciform life. Jesus gave us these images. Paul, Paul gives us the image of childbirth. Jesus gave us the image of washing his disciples' feet, menial labor. And then he gives us an even worse image of dying on the cross for us. These are the pictures of what our life should be like. Don't fall for the lie that your life should be easy, that you should just coast. Life is hard and it's beautiful. Life is hard and it's beautiful. Jesus is restoring this creation and he's inviting us into the process. We get to be a part of what he's doing. And we know that because by faith, we see what he's done for us. So we'll wrap up here. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance. It's like the, the foundation of the things we hope for that we can't see yet. It's the conviction of these things. It's this solidity. Faith is this thing that you can hang on to that, yeah, God is real. He is saving me. By it, the people of old, the ancients, received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Again, it's, it's very clear that creation is speaking to us. Creation is telling us that God is there. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. And we are all guilty of plugging our ears. We're all guilty of, of covering our eyes. So that even the disciples of Jesus, the ones that spent so much time with them, were like, but Jesus, we don't, we don't know the way where you're going. We haven't seen the Father Jesus said, I am the way. Like, yeah, but we haven't seen the Father. Show us the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so I'm going to cheat a little bit here. If, if you look at creation, you have a hard time seeing that God is good from creation. The Bible says that's more your problem than God's problem, but he goes the extra mile and he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to prove to you and to prove to me that God indeed is there and he loves us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're pursuing us. Thank you that you took our sin. Thank you that you entered into the muck and the mire with us in Jesus. And God, I pray that you would help us to enjoy, to taste, to touch, to feel, to smell, to walk through this creation as an ancient pathway to faith, to seeing that you're there, that you're good. But help us also to see in the good news and the beautiful song of Jesus that you indeed care for us. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.